I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. It hasn't been economics, but national security that has dominated headlines in the new year, as foreign policy events have unfolded with the potential of rewriting the geopolitical map in two of the most volatile regions of the world. First, on New Year's Eve, North Korea announced that it was no longer bound by a self-imposed pause on testing nuclear weapons and long-range missiles. Then, just days later, a U.S. missile strike ordered by President Trump killed the commander of Iranian forces, leading to threats from Iran of dire consequences and an announcement that it would abandon the accord's final restrictions on uranium enrichment and other activities unless U.S. sanctions were lifted. The ensuing chaos has placed greater attention on not only U.S. foreign policy and national security, but also on financial technology. The U.S. government is reportedly concerned that cyber strikes could imperil critical infrastructures, including banks and the financial system. Plus, one of the key levers for circumventing U.S. sanctions has been the deployment of cryptocurrencies, which can help hide illegal activities, and many experts fear even more illicit crypto-based finance may still be in store that could fund terrorist or state-sponsored strikes against U.S. interests. To discuss it all, I have with me Peter Harrell and Yaya Funusi. Peter is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Counter-Threat Finance and Sanctions in the State Department's Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs. And in that role, Peter was instrumental in developing international sanctions against Iran, Russia, and Syria. Yaya, meanwhile, spent seven years as both an economic and counterterrorism analyst at the CIA, where he regularly advised federal law enforcement, U.S. military personnel, and briefed President George W. Bush. Both are fellows at the Center for National Security. Yaya and Peter, thanks for making it onto the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure to be here. So these are two radically sort of different situations in different parts of the world with different kinds of geopolitics. But yet, nonetheless, the question of uh, both cybersecurity, cyber attacks, and cryptocurrencies are coming to the fore. Uh, Yaya, uh, really from your uh, perspective, I, mean, I know you've been thinking a lot uh, about uh, digital assets uh, and, and, and the sanctions uh, regimes, and particularly some of the rules that are unfolding within this specific geopolitical context. Um, maybe you can give us an idea of, of sort of how these sanctions are operating at a 10,000-foot level, and then what is the concern beyond just the anonymity and pseudonymity of, of cryptocurrencies uh, that are really driving uh, some of the financial regulatory rulemaking and really the environment in which a lot of these new market participants are, are, are operating? Well, cryptocurrencies and really blockchain technology allows for a new way of transferring value. And what we've seen, uh, not just with Iran, is we've seen multiple state actors get interested in uh, building new ways to transact outside of the financial system, which is influenced and in many ways led by the U.S., right? There are sanctions on uh, on Iranian banks. There are sanctions, uh, particular sanctions on, on Russian banks, um, sanctions against Venezuela. And we've seen 
seen uh, state actors who are under such sanctions experiment with projects to build alternate uh value transfer systems. And this is actually something we've seen in Iran. Uh, you know, the past really year plus, almost two years, um, Iranian institutions, uh, the Iranian Central Bank have been investing in cryptocurrency projects, investing in startups locally so that a new Iranian national cryptocurrency eventually could be developed. Much of this is outright uh, coming from the mouths of Iranian officials, a way to uh, lessen the effect of sanctions or to to avoid and, and deter the, the impact of sanctions on their economy. Now, whether they would work is a whole other question and be successful, but there's definitely an interest there. So that's one. And how does that situation compare or contrast to uh, North Korea? North Korea is is a little bit different. Well, you know, you could say that, of course, the North Korean economy is not as dynamic. North Korea has been burdened by sanctions in such a way that uh, the regime pretty much relies on, uh, you know, a whole host of illicit activity, uh, criminal activity to fund itself. And one of these types of activities is the hacking of cryptocurrency exchanges, right? Going, attacking a, a website that has a lot of Bitcoin or some of the other cryptocurrencies and simply, you know, uh, like a cyber hacker, simply attacking and stealing it and and then taking those funds into uh, a wallet that the, that the government controls. We've seen... We've seen that. There are different estimates whether they've raised, you know, hundreds of millions or, you know, dozens of millions of dollars. That is Korea's main interest. Find vulnerable websites, get the cryptocurrency, or even maybe mine cryptocurrency so that it could use it specifically to fund the regime directly. You can think of a lot of the activity as short-term versus long-term, right? North Korea getting at an exchange quickly so that it can use that cryptocurrency and then, you know, probably the regime elites are using that money for, for whatever purposes, right? And to enrich their nuclear program, to to buy luxury goods possibly, who knows? And where what we've seen in Iran is is maybe a little bit more long-term, where you have uh, bank officials saying, oh, you know, maybe this won't uh, immediately help us with sanctions, but this is the future. We should be looking outside of the U.S. And you even had the Iranian uh, President Rouhani uh, recently at a conference uh, uh, to several Muslim-majority nations put out the proposal, the suggestion that these countries should uh, work together and conduct trade using a new cryptocurrency, right? This was just an idea that was thrown out uh, to uh, to separate themselves from the West. So these are this is sort of strategizing these are ideas that are put out and there's some investment in it, but it's really a long-term, uh, this is points to a long-term direction of Iran. Peter, when you look at these things, uh, you know, Iran hasn't quite been as above board or at least as, as visibly engaged in crypto, has it? Well, so I think Iran has, has clearly been quite interested in crypto. They've talked about developing crypto, um, interestingly, the U.S. Uh, sanctions regulator has actually imposed sanctions on a couple of digital wallets uh, that uh, are Iran-linked uh, digital wallets. The first time the U.S. sanctions regulator has tried to uh, impose sanctions on a digital wallet, uh, which was kind of an interesting uh, development. So I think that uh, Iran is clearly interested in uh, crypto as experimenting with crypto um, I think that as a kind of share of total sanction circumvention, uh, crypto is comparatively less important for Iran than it is uh, for North Korea. I think it is probably a more central focus uh, for North Korea than it is uh, for Iran, but, but Iran is clearly interested in it. 
I also think that the uh, the difference between the way North Korea and Iran approach uh, cryptocurrency is pretty consistent with how they have uh, approached sanctions busting in the past. I mean, as Yaya said, North Korea has long engaged in criminal activity as part of its revenue raising for the regime. So if you looked back at the 1990s or the 2000s, you know, what was North Korea doing to raise revenue? They were, you know, engaged in drug smuggling. There was a period of time where they were counterfeiting U.S. $100 bills. So the idea that this kind of longtime criminal enterprise regime would do what, what other criminal enterprises do, move into the hot new area of hacking uh, cryptocurrency, I think is pretty consistent with, you know, how they have long uh, approached a major source of their revenue raising. You know, similarly, Iran for many years has looked for different ways to figure out how to circumvent the financial sanctions that are impairing Iranian trade. So when I worked at the State Department, one of the things we saw Iran doing in, in kind of the mid-2010s uh, uh, to bust sanctions was gold smuggling. They had all these guys who were purchasing gold in uh, Istanbul uh, and elsewhere in Turkey and load it in briefcases and fly every week briefcases of gold on commercial flights to Dubai or to Iran. And then they'd use the gold to, you know, buy, the Iranians would use the gold to buy stuff that they needed uh, inside Iran and from elsewhere in the Middle East. You know, moving briefcases of gold is a pretty inefficient and expensive way of purchasing stuff uh, with lots of friction and transaction costs associated with it. So the idea that Iran would want to shift to cryptocurrency in order to make those payments easier, simpler, uh, and more frictionless, uh, just makes a ton of sense uh, if you look at what their, you know, what their historical alternative has been. Think back to uh, an information warfare campaign that we in the U.S. actually saw uh, very recently, which was from Russia, right? Cryptocurrencies are best known for allowing transactions that can be hidden, that can be pseudonymous, right, uh, to obfuscate financial activity. And when you look at the Russian campaign, it was pretty much facilitated by about $95,000 worth of cryptocurrencies. Uh, crypto was used to purchase VPNs, to uh, rent computer servers, uh, to purchase domain names, all of that so that the military intel folks could mount this operation, but do, to do it in a way that hid their, uh, their identity. It's that use of cryptocurrency that could play into an information campaign. I mean, and, and we've seen that, that uh, you know, whether it's been Iran or other state actors, you know, this is, uh, this is one use of cryptocurrencies that we've, that we've actually seen. Yeah, yeah. I know you've, you've thought a little bit about sort of what the international financial regulatory community is doing to respond to these kinds of emerging uh, threats. Uh, how exactly do those responses kind of compare to the very different kinds of risks that are posed by, say, a large regional power that's looking to access um, or to build up a, a, a crypto infrastructure for trading, as, as, as Peter has mentioned, and potentially for sanctions evasion. And then you have this sort of smaller uh, country that's really more of a cybersecurity threat that's looking to hack into softer targets. I mean, how is the international regulatory community responding to very different threats, e even though they're kind of all getting lumped together under this larger sort of uh, uh, category of, of, of cryptocurrency and blockchain-related uh, dangers? 
there is a convergence because the way that you deal with uh, bad actors, illicit actors, uh, um, exploiting the financial system, whether they're state actors or non-state actors, actually, um, you, you know, comes down to uh, a compliance within the financial system, anti-money laundering and countering uh, the financing of terrorism uh, compliance and sanctions compliance. So these are things that actually we already have in the financial system. The issue with cryptocurrencies uh, is that the industry for trading them, buying and selling uh, and transacting with them uh, has largely throughout the world been uh, unregulated or loosely regulated because it's a new technology. So the issue is not so much um, how do you get uh, North Korea or Iran uh, to stop, you know, how do you prevent them from using crypto? That That is a question. But really the policy issue is how do you ensure that this industry where people use cryptocurrency is regulated so that it's difficult for bad actors to, to access them, to acquire them, uh, and to use them anonymously? That's the thing. And the way you do that shortly is you ensure that that industry is regulated roughly in the same way that money service businesses currently are, that, that other financial institutions are. Peter, what's your view, though, um, as you're looking at uh, not just sort of the volatility in this, in this particular geopolitical um, context, but, you know, crypto, to the extent to which different kinds of actors are able to create their own uh, commercial infrastructure that's based on um, sort of blockchain-related technologies. I mean, I mean, what what do you see as some of the emerging financial um, uh, as well as sort of technological uh, challenges that are going to be ultimately uh, uh, posed to uh, regulators and foreign policy experts? So I think that um, I see both kind of near-term and longer-term, more systemic uh, risks that crypto uh, and other financial technologies could pose to uh, sanctions enforcement. I mean, if you look at how Iran and North Korea are using crypto today, again, very different ways in which they're using crypto, but the scale of the threat is really not that large yet. I mean, we're talking about, you know, as Yaya says, depending on the estimates, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, not billions and billions of dollars. This is um, a tool that both countries are using probably still on a smaller scale than other uh, sanctioned circumvention tools like smuggling cash, setting up front companies to try to work through the, the sort of traditional international financial system, you know, gold smuggling and things like that. So it's, it's kind of a a new, you know, at, at the scale we're talking about now, it's kind of a new iteration of, of an existing and long-time uh, game that I think poses new enforcement challenges, but doesn't sort of systemically threaten sanctions. And you've seen regulators respond to this type of risk, primarily by focusing on improving compliance at the exchange level. So making sure that crypto exchanges do better know your customer checks and really understand who is purchasing uh, cryptocurrency and trading cryptocurrency uh, on their uh, platforms and improving their AML or anti-money laundering standards to understand what transactions are suspicious and how to keep suspicious crypto-related transactions off the, the platform. So they're kind of trying to develop for cryptocurrency exchanges a regulatory structure that is similar to what you see in the uh, traditional financial system and, and seeing this as kind of a new iteration of an old, long-time 
sanctions busting uh, tradition. I think the more systemic risk is if crypto uh, or other fintech payments go global in scale so that uh, an actor like Iran or like North Korea uh, you know, could actually do something like trade oil in crypto or, you know, generate other kinds of large export revenues via crypto. From a, an, a sanctions enforcement perspective, you get into the problem where you might actually see what Iran is doing. Iran might actually be a, doing it overtly. We just wouldn't be able to stop it because it would be happening in crypto with companies in Asia through exchanges that are all in Asia. And there's just no real touch point to the U.S. that the U.S. could could use to shut down that transaction. I think we are a very long way from that world. We may never get there, uh, but that's the longer term, more systemic risk that I see. You know, right now what we're seeing, as I say, is kind of crypto emerging as a new sanctions busting scheme, but on a scale similar to what we've seen, you know, decades past sanctions busting schemes look like. Yaya, Peter, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We may not have started the fire, but the world today is as dangerous as it's ever been. And fintech, like other emerging technologies, will have to navigate it. Still, I'm guessing a nuanced national security strategy may well be necessary in order to get the results that most Western powers seem to be seeking. Clearly, not all countries are the same, and approaches will have to take into consideration the wealth, sophistication, and geostrategic interests of actors when thinking through their counter-cyber threat responses. Iran's larger, more advanced economy seems to suggest a focus on, uh, or at least surveillance of, how commercial transactions in the future will be operationalized, and with what forms of payment and with whom. Meanwhile, North Korea's recent crypto adventure suggests that cybersecurity risks may well be the most appropriate points of emphasis for that country. And if that's the case, foreign policy, especially as it involves cryptocurrencies, might best center on regional collaboration and the development of robust technical standards and support for digital infrastructures. In any event, it will be interesting to see how the international community and the U.S. responds to these emerging challenges. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.